Warning. We can only save ourselves and save the planet if we respect our neighbors and we respect ourselves. We're talking about survival or extinction, love or terror, home or exile. Roll up, roll up, welcome one and all. Step right this way. Come steep your toes into the sea of moral generosity. Experience the violent revolutions of a roller coaster of rhetoric. Prepare to be dumbfounded by our 100 foot tall bong. This is seriously wrong. Welcome, everyone, to the Seriously Wrong podcast. I am your co-host, Sean. I am Aaron, and I just want to remind Sean that we're going to call it the Seriously Wrong show from now on. Oh, really? We fully, we're switching oh, over? that was your suggestion. I thought that was... Welcome to Seriously Wrong Radio. Awkward start, but we're going to be talking about comedy and politics. Two things which some people like and some people don't. Do people not like comedy? Like, they might not like stand-up comedy, but they have to like laughter. Is there anyone who just doesn't like laughter? There's got to be. I mean, humankind is such a beautiful tapestry of different potentialities living. But yeah, politics is funny in a sense. It's about power, but it's also about poetry. And there's backstabbing. And like you look at political orgs that split off from one another and have like factions within them and stuff (laughs) like that. It's almost like tragically humorous, but the idea of like these human foibles getting in the way of people trying to make the world better. Yeah, and better. it's like so high-minded. It's so high-minded, but then so low-brow. It's like, we need liberty. We need equality. We need to treat each other as brothers. And if you don't think this bylaw needs to be changed, then you're frankly scum who's unworthy of participating in what I just described. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have my police take you away. <laughs> that's how all politics is (laughs) sometimes i found myself at like organizing meetings like for a protest or something it's like we want to do a protest about privacy on the internet and then whoever comes out comes out and then you're working with them and stuff when it starts going like crazy off the rails and like people are picking the silliest fights getting caught up in like the realm of ideas rather than like the realm of doing things and taking responsibility for things and like making stuff happen. When a meeting's really going off the rails, I just like usually will start laughing. I try not to because I always feel like it comes off like I'm laughing at people. But there's sort of a joyful like sometimes just watching like these knots form and just like everyone (laughs) doing just exactly what they shouldn't do. Just the worst (laughs) organizing ever. And then the other person takes their bait and it just becomes this horrible spiral of like not doing anything. They're taking something so seriously that they're preventing serious work from getting done. People get caught in these arguments and these interpersonal conflicts. And it's like, if you all just took a breath and 
did what Sean is modeling for you here and found what's funny in the situation. Learn to laugh at yourself. Learn to laugh at your comrades and the situation. Like, it's all a bit ridiculous. <laughs> Existence is a bit ridiculous. It's a bit absurd. And when you lose sight of that, you lose the ability to interact with people well because you have your head up your ass. And that's a big problem, having your head up your ass. You can't see things. Mm -hmm. You can't communicate. You can't socialize. It's, it's in all likelihood stretching it out. I mean... <laughs> So yeah, I think having a sense of humor is important. Yeah, well, and I think it's about being the type of person that people want to be around. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, well, like if you want to do work with people, like I've had jobs where I've had coworkers and coworkers I can joke around with. I can get things done with in a way that's more comfortable. It's Because politics is serious and there's these serious moral questions and so people get really uh, about it. But... <laughs> If you make yourself miserable to be around, then you're not going to be effective and the serious work isn't going to get done. So we have an interview today. His name's Adam Krauss. Uh, he wrote a book called The Revolution Will Be Hilarious. And um, we could do the tape gag or we could like, what's another way that we yeah, could? Yeah, we could get the phonograph. Oh, yeah, that's cool. So I'll just wheel out the phonograph. I'm just going to slide it out of the sleeve here. Thank you for doing that, having our interview with Adam converted to a vinyl record. It's oh, yeah. really helpful for this bit. It was worth the money. It's a specialty sort of thing, but then we can put it in the archive and we know that it's safe. And it says the seriously wrong sessions, volume one. Keeping the door open for a volume two. Yeah, like just, it. you know, I mean, you don't have to, but keeping the door open. So I'll just put that on here and uh, play it and the uh, button. I love the sound of the record turning. It's just kind oh, of yeah. a... That's nice. Okay, put that needle on. Today on the show, we have Adam Krauss, the author of a collection of essays called The Revolution Will Be Hilarious, and other essays. Thank you for coming on the show today, Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So in The Revolution Will Be Hilarious, you use the structure of jokes as an extended metaphor to explain the psychology of democracy. Well, I think in both cases, a rigid insistence on a single viewpoint blocks your ability to deal well with people unlike yourself or understand jokes. And I think to explain that, you got to kind of get into how jokes work. And I really borrowed heavily from Arthur Kessler who wrote a book called The Act of Creation in the early 60s. He was a pretty interesting guy. He had been born in Hungary and was a Stalinist who was one of the first to become sort of disillusioned with Stalinism. And he wrote an essay for a book that the CIA funded that was called The God That Failed. <laughs> and it was Richard Wright and some other people and Arthur Kessler all wrote essays about their disillusionment with communism. And the CIA actually threw... I think Marshall Plan Money funded the publication of the book. It was one of their first ventures into publishing to sort of bring European intellectuals onto the U.S. side of things. And so he did that and 20-some years later wrote this book called The Act of Creation. But if you look at the books this guy wrote, it's books on psychology, political history. He wrote about mysticism and levitation. But he also wrote this book, and it was one of the first heavy nonfiction books I read, like my older brother had a copy for college and I was, you know, in eighth grade or something and I precociously read it. And so it really stuck with me. And he's trying to explain or like lay a groundwork for creativity, you know, from coming up with jokes to like scientific insight to 
understanding what play you're going to write or whatever. And he coins the term by association to explain what the common factor is. And in the book, he starts with comedy. And I think one of the jokes that I quote to explain by association is Groucho Marx. Uh, one morning I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How he got in my pajamas, I'll never know. And so it's like the cross between in my pajamas, you know, one morning in my pajamas and the person hearing the joke is on this one plane of like, okay, you're up and you're wearing pajamas. And then, oh, wait, elephant in my pajamas. And suddenly in my pajamas and in my pajamas sort of cross. And you realize that there are multiple planes and interpretations where these terms intersect that you hadn't seen before. And that's the surprise that makes a punchline function. And like, it seems maybe oversimplistic, but the more I thought about it and the more jokes I looked at, you know, like most kind of set up punchline joke jokes follow a structure and rely on by association. And so I was thinking about this and I actually had like a by associative moment where the whole thesis just kind of hit me. You know, I was reading a lot of Bookchin, finishing my first book, Artist Politics, and taking breaks by watching comedy movies and thinking about jokes and listening to Mark Maron's podcast. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a lot like democracy. Like you can't deal well with people who aren't like you if you can only think on one plane. You know, like these white nationalists who are gaining more and more ground in public discourse, you know, their famous 14 words. I don't know it, but it's like we yeah, want to white secure baby something. Yeah, like they want to secure white history or whatever, you know, that there's this tradition and we need to maintain it and it's the thing. But, you know, like if you're locked into that and you see this unchanging monolith stretching back into history, like one, you're totally misunderstanding your own history because there's no such thing for anyone, you know, like just the idea of whiteness is a construct. And so you're dealing with these abstractions and then insisting on them and really like trying to maintain them and protect them from other ideas and getting soiled by outside influence. But if you're going to exist in the world with all the other people who also live in the world in a equitable way, you're going to need to be able to see from outside your own framework, like think on multiple planes, not bi-associationally necessarily, but multi-associationally to be able to hop back and forth from linguistic code to linguistic code and see different shades of experience and how different histories and cultures will view things and be able to assimilate ideas that seemingly come from outside your own and share your own with others. And the adaptability it takes to be democratic is also the adaptability it takes to be funny. And I may have also just accidentally explained why there's no good right-wing comedian <laughs> so well first of all i want to say just generally speaking i love what you're saying so much it's like so extreme in my shit when i first read your book last year it was lent to me by a friend and just was blown away by this essay of like yet like you had articulated something that was underneath the surface in a way that just made it so fucking clear and on point and went beyond what I thought of. So I just I want to cool. throw out that compliment. <laughs> I love this shit. Well, that's wonderful to hear because I mean, writing compared to a lot of other things, so much of it is a, a private thing. It's not like being a musician and playing a show like nobody claps when you finish a sentence. <laughs> You're just on your own and you write a sentence and it's like, I think that's good. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I'll erase it just to be safe. So it's, it's good to hear verbal 
affirmation. So thank you. Here's a bit more, because at one point you say something like, if you think about it, this connection explains why people who have a rigid ideology are neither funny nor democratic. And it's because they're, they're locked into this one way of thinking, this one reality mm-hmm. tunnel. I've yeah. actually got, I think, the quote you're referring to written down here in my notes, which is, a mind that perceives only one correct mode of being is both inherently undemocratic and humorless. Yeah, 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 I think that was it. One of the things that the by association idea and the way that it applies to comedy and politics really reminded me of is the slogan on the crest of Wrongtown is have a safe birth. Right. And we sort yeah. of talked about having a safe birth as a revolutionary metaphor. And it's, it's not like laugh out loud funny. I've certainly smirked about it and also just sort of like quietly appreciating like a mid-tier onion article, you know, like <laughs> you're not smiling or anything. You're just there's a part of your brain that's just like, yes, well done. So to be explicit, the by association here is having a safe birth as a metaphor for the revolutionary process, a birthing of a new world and how do we make that safe for everyone involved make sure that the new society the baby is safe i think that it's actually a really powerful metaphor and it is a bit funny especially it's just like everyone says it to each other in wrong town it's part of what i like it just being yeah, like right, oh right, yeah, have right. a safe birth okay have a safe birth but yeah i think there is a lot of like sort of political depth to it as well like the more i've thought about it the more i've been like oh holy shit like we do need to be revolutionary doulas like wait, wait sorry sorry doulas just because i didn't know this until before oh they're, are... they're people who assist the mother in a non-medical capacity to like keep her comfortable and right, stuff like that right and so all through human history birth has been a more traumatic affair than it is now and like birth is still fairly traumatic. It's like, oh, a, yeah, it's an extreme thing to happen to it's a person. It's a peak experience. I understand. Anyway, I've never given birth and I never will. Yeah. But it's my understanding from those who have given birth. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've heard that as well. <laughs> from birthers. birthers. <laughs> There's a little by association. Birthers meaning two things. Boom. Explaining jokes makes them more powerful. Oh, <laughs> uh, so true. But like, it used to be that childbirth would be like rolling the dice on whether or not the the mother dies. Yeah, and also whether or not the baby dies. But it was also just this necessary component of, of society, yeah. something that was part of everyone's like regular life. It was just like this horrifying dice roll where you and or your baby might die. Yeah. But that changed over time through advances in technology and also advances in understanding birth. It's like we went from a six-sided die to one of those Dungeons and Dragons, like 30-whatever-sided dies. Way safer. The odds are way more in the favor of safety now. And, and I feel like it might be true with political revolution as well. Like, maybe because of increasing levels of, like, political consciousness and awareness, because of technological advances, we could develop to a point where we're able to do birth much safer yeah as a society I think, I think the potential is really there the one thing though that came to mind when you were talking about that is a difference between birthing of babies and the birthing of new social orders is that attempts to birth new social orders i feel like have actually gotten more violent as history progresses because we've been using technology to like build bigger guns bomb like you know 
industrial murder and genocide machines. So while the potential is there, the intentions haven't been directed properly in that direct, not the same way with births. Everyone seems to have agreed that making births of babies safer is good, but people just, they love war for some reason, certain people sometimes. And I think the baby model of putting our conscious energy towards making it safer is a good way to go. Yeah, that's a, that's a really worthwhile use of analysis and effort. Yeah. I'd put effort towards that. Yeah, put effort to figure out how to change society in a safe yeah, way. Yeah, we should definitely make that plan A and... And go with plan work. A. Yeah, plan A is... You always start with plan A, right? Like plan A first. Definitely. I don't know why all these people are starting with plans B through Z when plan A is just sitting right there on top of the pile. Plan A. Plan A. Okay, so we should do a sketch, create a character that is a humorless revolutionary archetype. Yeah, really show how that falls flat. Even if they have the right ideas, they want to have a safe birth. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is like a baby-centric politics, safe birth-centric politics, like niche utopian aims. But then they're sort of like an authoritarian crypto-fascist. They talk about wanting to keep babies safe, that babies are the seeds of a future society. Babies are... The revolutionary subject. The revolutionary subject. <laughs> babies <laughs> are the revolutionary <laughs> so, subject. Because so, like, they're just not. Like, you grow into being a subject. No, the real heart of the revolution exists in the minds of babies, and we need to use technology <laughs> to get it out. Yeah, if you look at toddlers and, like, little children, they have such wisdom sometimes. <laughs> so it just stands to reason that babies have the most wisdom. And so this, this authoritarian leader... He casts himself as a baby. He, right, in order to get the credibility exactly, of the wisdom yeah. of babies. He uses the logic of, like, children are the future as the axis of his politics, but he casts himself as a child and says that he deserves to be treated that way, basically. Yeah, like, he's the baby. He's the biggest, most powerful, <laughs> strongest, but as the fascist elements come back in. Yeah, he's the big baby. <laughs> Lord Big Baby. Lord Big Baby. That's a great name for uh, an authoritarian <laughs> dictator. He's got like one tuft of hair at the front, like a little curl. Like a... Always has to get it bleached really light blonde, so it's kind of wispy like a baby's hair. They care for him. He goes to bed in a crib. He drinks from a big bottle. <laughs> he, they sing lullabies to him. He's pampered. He's sort of like a 1% metaphor, you know, of like right. he's the top of society. <laughs> and he just lives in this like cuddle world. And they're warriors and their battle cry is like babies crying. <laughs> the baby <laughs> like and the baby scream and just like Wah. yeah I guess we're like all together like wah <laughs> <laughs> you do it in a menacing way <laughs> <laughs> we are crying about the injustices of the world yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay let's just do a quick scene do you want to be Lord Big Baby? Oh, gosh. That's a lot of pressure. I can. It's no problem. Yeah, okay. You be Lord Big Baby. Okay, I'll be Lord Big Baby. Excuse me? Goo goo gaga, Mr. Lord Baby, sir? Yes, what is it? Coochie coo. I was hoping to get your naive childlike <laughs> approval on new danglers on the giant baby mobile that runs above Wrongtown. The babies of Wrongtown deserve better. Wah. Wah. I'm fond of the baby mobiles that currently is above Wrongtown, so I say wah. But, you know, change is inevitable, don't you think? Wah. 
I don't like what you're saying at all. Wah. Oh, hush, hush, baby. You know, it's okay. It's okay. Wah. Here, let me pat you on the back. There's no need to kill me. My life is not forfeit. Oh, there we go. I'd like to see that smile on the big baby's face. There we go. Where, though? Seriously, where? You'll love a new mobile, trust me. Oh, no, baby. Put it back, baby. Where? Baby, no. Yeah. Where? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess NC, my character's NC, bleeding yeah. out on the and floor. Maybe he wouldn't kill him with a sword. He'd have his police arrest him. Right, this is more illustrative to have him do it with a sword, but yeah, in reality, he, if there was a real Lord Baby. <laughs> he called his police to arrest them, but we're sort of twisted, creative, so we put our own stink on it. So you say in the book that the type of thinking that's modeled by comedy can help work with a wide variety of people and, and that both jokes and free societies require an expansive perspective in order to have more things to bisociate or multi-associate to interact with a diverse group of people and understand they come from different perspectives and then be aware of the places where there's intersections or tensions and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could maybe articulate further the connection between authoritarianism and, and humorlessness. I mean, just think about uh, Mussolini's speeches or Hitler's speeches, like the way they're delivered, this guy's just screaming, you know, like there, <laughs> there's no room for a joke. I've read that Donald Trump tries to scowl that way in photographs because he's trying to look like Winston Churchill. Like he intentionally tries not to smile in photographs because he wants to convey a sense of seriousness and statesmanship. And, you know, I think that makes you ridiculous in the end. It doesn't have the effect that he wants. It creates this impression that he's just this ridiculous and pompous bloated figure, whereas someone that can laugh at themselves and understand what's funny about themselves and other people and the world and what they're doing and that they may hold some ridiculous job like president of the United States, you know, like that's pretty funny. And in an authoritarian personality, look at them and see how they behave. And it tends to be pompous and unfunny delivered with a scowl, you know? Yeah, that's such a great point that it seems ridiculous like to anyone who's on the same plane or perspective as the ideologue they they perceive it as you know inspiring or great or amazing mm-hmm. or wh- whatever they're like this one's right on the money but to everyone who's outside of that is like what are these people doing and just screaming mm-hmm. or like scowling all the time like you you seem ridiculous it's Any, a, anyone who has mm-hmm. like multiple planes to intersect at least has one plane that sees donald trump as someone who looks like he's been badly stung by bees and is a frog mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah i mean bill o'reilly got canceled but the one or two times i saw his show or clips of it i don't know like he must have had like people bringing him throat coat tea all the time or something because he would yell for the entire episode like he was just <laughs> amped up and yelling and there's veins popping out of his head and like if you're yelling over people trying to force your point you know like how much listening did he ever do there was no give and take in his interviews it was just waiting for the opportunity to yell over someone or along with someone who we had on who agreed with him and i don't think he's funny 
And I don't think that his friends and family think he's funny. Like, well, uh, it was really funny. The, uh, I mean, it's actually it's some rough chuckles, really. But you know, when he was like sexually harassing the women who worked underneath him, him like trying to have a sexual phone trying call, trying to say with the, the word loofah. Yeah, exactly. He keeps on <laughs> and calling he said, the loofah. He says falafel. Yeah, yeah, he calls the <laughs> instead of referring to the loofah in the shower as a loofah when he's trying to like tell this sexy scenario of what he's going to do in the shower to his political under un, he's like oh yeah that grabbing that fucking falafel is going to wipe you down with a falafel like your back is just going to be covered in turmeric it's going to look awful well it's as you say in the essay it's another just fire quote i wrote down i love so much it's always those whose authority is most arbitrary and absurd who insist on being surrounded by seriousness you should distrust anyone who distrusts laughter. And I, I, I feel like Bill O'Reilly is a good example of that. This yelling, over-serious, dominating conversations with all this arbitrary and absurd authority over other people. And then he can't remember the fucking word loofah when he's sexually harassing someone. <laughs> but he can suddenly remember falafel. Yeah. <laughs> he must have been hungry. Dad? Yes, son. What is it? Ask you a question. Yeah. Did you finish your serious children's movie? Yeah. It made me cry. Good. That's what I like to hear. So what was the question you had to ask? You know, Mr. Jeff, what happened to him when the police came? Well, see, apparently, and now I didn't know this, because if I did, I would have reported it to the authorities, and that's what you should do if you ever find this out about someone. Okay, Dad. Not only was Jeff making jokes, he was making jokes about our dear leader. What? So they took him from his house, and, well, you know, all death cults require a blood sacrifice. Why is it bad to make jokes? Joking takes different perspectives about the world and then mashes them together. It warps your brain in an unexpected direction and causes you to think funny thoughts. That's why we call them funny thoughts. Oh. And they're bad. Uh. We don't want to see things from different perspectives because there's only one universe and there's only one truth. And we know what's true by asking leader. Oh. Now, I, I don't approve of any jokes. I don't want any other perspectives. But if you made a joke about a dissenter, like Jeff, like maybe he was had a watermelon. Never mind. I'm not. Jeez, that was close. You're scaring me, Dad. <laughs> but if someone did do what I just didn't do, they would get a few years in jail. You've got to crack down on that. But it's not as bad as making fun of leader. Oh. Do you have any other questions? Um, yeah, who is leader? He's the biggest baby, the strongest baby, but mm. he maintains that youthful perspective that only babies have. And we follow Lord Big Baby in this house. We love Lord Big Baby. Uh -huh. We would consider it an honor to change his diapers. I want to change Big Baby's diaper someday, Dad. That a boy. Just rustle your hair. <laughs> father always loves having comedy lessons with his son. I trust you so much, Dad, and everything I know as I grow up, you teach me. And everything I know comes from Lord Big Baby, so thank you to Lord Big Baby. <laughs> thank you, Lord Big Baby. Thank you. Coochie goo. One sort of recent development around when we're talking about this far-right movement, which 
fingers crossed, has already peaked. And <laughs> one of the things that's made this generation of crypto Nazis and Nazis and all this shit that we're seeing on the internet sort of distinct, seemingly, from previous iterations of this sort of like authoritarian movements and personalities is their use of humor and their use of mm -hmm. online irony and the sort of like far right meme culture. And do you have any thoughts on how modern fascist movements use humor and why why it because it almost seems like a contradiction yeah. to the the premise that the authoritarian personality is humorless. Like I don't find their shit funny, but clearly Yeah, they it's do. kind of a new thing because the first iteration of this essay was published in 2013. And I think that a lot has happened on the far right since then that I don't necessarily do a great job of covering, but I don't think I'm necessarily wrong. I don't think that there's much good humor and there's a lot of bad graphic design going on. I think that they just speak in these closed cells and it self-perpetuates where this becomes like a series of in-jokes. But I haven't seen any good material. And I think like Chris Rock talks about punching down is not funny. And that's a good point. And it's turning into kind of a cliche because so many people have been saying it lately. I quote Gary Trudeau, who draws Doonesbury in the book, who uses the term punching down. And, you know, like if you're making fun of marginalized people who already are set back and have to work harder to get anywhere and you're fucking making fun of them, what you're doing is not funny. What you're doing is mean. You're a bully and like bullying and making fun of people who are already in a disadvantaged position. It's just not funny. But, you know, apparently it's caught on in the same way. You know, I remember grade school when there'd be a bully. The worst thing about it was the way that one leader would start picking on one person. And then it was like a bunch of hens seeing blood. They all just come in and all start pecking and you've got a dozen kids making fun of the one kid you know like you can get people excited to be mean which is incredibly unfortunate but it's not a good use of humor it's not actually funny but it becomes popular in certain circles and catches on you give a bit of time in the essay to sort of distinguish between like good uses of humor, like liberatory uses of humor, and then more repressive modes of humor. And one way that you frame it is good comedy helps people to feel less alone, points out hypocrisy of power, it, it punches against the right people for the right reasons, and it expands people's horizons and helps them see things in a new way. In contrast to like this bad type of comedy, which helps push people further into rigidity, reinforces seeing things just one way. As I was working on drafts of that, like I had a little bit of, you know, like a sentence or two and I'm like, okay, it's covered. I can go on to multi-association, which is what I want to talk about. And then somebody would be like, hey, I read your draft really good, like the multi-association stuff. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of mean jokes out there. Maybe you should talk more about that. And I was like, uh, I've got some in there. And then I add a little bit more. And I feel like that just snowballed as people critiqued it. That was the number one critique. You have to say more about mean jokes. And I tried and just keep <laughs> throwing that in and reminding people like powerful politicians with a lot of money who are enriching their friends by warming the globe and starting wars, building more and more weapons. They're the ones you should make fun of. The poor people whose labor they're enriching themselves from, you don't need to make fun of them. If you make fun of them, you're just being mean and you should stop that. 
today's episode of the Seriously Wrong Podcast is brought to you by being against mean jokes. Now, Sean, are you against mean jokes? Yes. Yeah, no, I'm totally against mean jokes. Are you against mean jokes? I am against mean jokes. Okay, so it's fair to say that we are against mean jokes. Yeah, you and I as two individuals are against mean jokes, and I think that means that the official position of the podcast is also against mean jokes. Yeah, so no mean jokes. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong, proudly brought to you by... No, no, no. No mean jokes. Thank you. Back to the show. But you're against mean jokes. I'm against mean jokes. I just wanted to spend more time talking about things. I'm totally against mean jokes. It wasn't my main concern, but then it ended up becoming a concern because it's a problematic element of comedy that you can't avoid when you start talking about comedy and politics. It was almost a frustration for me at a certain point while writing. It's like, oh man, I got to talk more about how people are mean with jokes. Okay, don't be mean with jokes period, you know, <laughs> and just keep throwing that in. And I don't think that that's something that you necessarily should have to remind people of all the time, but you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mean jokes aren't as funny as making fun of powerful people who deserve it. The end. Hey there. I was wondering if I could play with you and the cool kids i'm new here i just want to fit in and have social acceptance oh you want to have social acceptance with us sorry what was your name my name is wendell hey uh this kid wendell wants to hang with us <laughs> <laughs> yeah you got mustard on your shirt wendell oh yeah i was eating like a, a hot dog it's a little whoopsie daisy sorry what was your name mustard boy oh wendell not mustard his boy. name i'm not mustard is boy mustard boy no hey guys my, this no. guy can't hang out with us oh come on guys no i want to hang out sorry no mustard boys allowed i'm Get not a mustard boy mustard boy mustard boy mustard boy mustard boy Mustard boy. <laughs> oh, what's mustard boy gonna cry? He smells like mustard and he wants to hang out with us. Now, if I don't explain this, this isn't going to make any sense whatsoever. Within Wrongtown, everyone's private thoughts travel up through the air into space, travel across satellites back and forth. But sometimes, just sometimes, these satellites malfunction and send people's private thoughts to the wrong person. And in this case, this little boy, Wendell, received thoughts that were intended for someone else. We now go back to the playground where Wendell has received foreign thoughts from a satellite. I don't I don't smell like mustard. It's just a tiny little speck. <laughs> mustard boy's sad. He can't hang out with us. He's being permanently excluded, not part of the group. What's your name? I didn't even ask what your name is. My name's Burke. Burke? Yeah. Well, you know what, Burke? Calling me mustard boy isn't very funny, Burke, because comedy is meant to bring people together, <laughs> help us yeah. all feel more included and joyful it's not supposed to hurt people it's powerful using comedy like a bludgeon is dangerous burke and it's only funny if you're being a jerk uh, i'm uh uh <gasps> oh my gosh he peed himself burke the jerk peed himself burke the jerk <laughs> peed himself <laughs> now guys stop that stop that I'm not defined by spilling mustard on my shirt, and Burke isn't defined by peeing himself once. We 
should not make fun of Nina, him. Nina, Pee pee boy, pee pee boy, Burke peed himself. Cody, maybe watch where you're directing those barbs. I was at that slumber party. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Burke, do you want to go inside and we'll see if there's a change of clothes at the nurse's office? Yeah. Thank you, Wendell. You're welcome. Is there anything you, else you want to say to me? I'm sorry. I'm re- what are you sorry for? I'm sorry because you were really vulnerable and you're a new person and I had social power and I used comedy to exclude you and exile you and instead of welcoming you and I didn't use comedy for its real full potential to unite people and bring people together and thank you for standing up for me. You were really the bigger person here. Well, I think that apologizing to me is a pretty big thing to do and I accept your apology and I hope that we both grow from this experience. Now that I can agree with, friend. Friend? Friend. 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 Yay, <laughs> I made a friend. Thanks, thoughts that weren't mine from the satellite about the true nature of what comedy is meant to be in the best of all worlds. The end. In the book, drawing further parallels between democracy and comedy, you talk about uh, finding solutions to political problems and punchlines, and that you know both of those result from finding those places of intersection in ways that are both logical and unexpected. Do you think that the, uh, the ability to find those intersection points is something that we can like, should we be educating people in comedy in order to help them be better participants in democracy? Like, this process of finding that intersecting point, the logical but unexpected solution to the problem is so key. And how do we get more of it? You must know. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily <laughs> know. But I think not necessarily educating people for comedy, like, oh, you all got to go to the like, you know, workshop for stand-up comedy or something or clown school. Like, that's not the answer. But I think when you said educating, there was like a little snap for me. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, the American educational system, uh, abysmal and falling to pieces, you know, the adjunctification of colleges, lack of money for research, you know, like universities are steering people more and more into business and humanities departments are getting cut. But how do you learn to understand other cultures and other viewpoints and like a liberal arts education for everybody, even people who are planning to be accountants, like requiring learning a foreign language and reading literature, not in translation, but from a different culture and reading and movie viewing and history for everyone all through schooling. I think that just educating people into these really narrow worldviews and cutting education so that people barely learn to read and write, skate through, enter the workforce, barely have enough money to travel and see the world. Suburbs are zoned so that you're only around somebody like yourself. And then, you know, the inner city is zoned so that, you know, everybody's just kept separately. And the chances for by association between cultures is slim. I think that having a broad education, getting outside of your comfort zones, reading widely, seeing the world, talking to people unlike yourself. Like you don't, you'll probably end up hilarious just by doing that. Like you don't need to go to clown school. 
So, yeah, I think just education in general and, you know, bring back the humanities for everybody. You can almost think of it as like in our society, there's a structural kind of authoritarian humorlessness that people are being set up from a young age to be less funny and to be less diverse in their views based on sort of what you're describing. Education in general is becoming more and more directed toward creating a workforce and business school and things that are seen as superfluous that are entirely essential to creating truly open and democratic people are being cut and disappearing. And it's it's infuriating. Right. Yeah. They, they want to educate people into these very specific roles, which is exactly the opposite of what we want, exactly the opposite yeah. of what you're talking about, because it doesn't mesh with creative thinking. I recently was at the Institute for Social Ecology summer intensive. I had sort of this like bisociative moment. I had this this insight, it felt like, of sitting in these talks and they're really interesting talks about a variety of subjects and and just but just you know like sitting there taking notes and super great. But then we had so like I've been an improviser for a long time, like since I was a kid, improv was like my number one shit. It was what I was all about. And we had an instructor come in and do uh, like theater of the oppressed, I think it's called with a group of us. Huh. What we ended up doing is like a person would say like, I'm so and so and I feel blank. You could just say anything. I, f- I feel like a superhero. But it, however you say it and whatever you do with your body, everyone in the circle had to repeat. And so like when wow. we started doing this is when people started trickling out of the room because they didn't want to be humiliated. It's meant <laughs> to get people out of their heads, get them into their bodies, be creative, make a fool of yourself in front of people in a vulnerable and safe place. It really reminded me of improv. And I actually found that after doing it, and I went through the whole thing and like another thing we did is split up into groups and then you'd put your hand in front of someone's face and like move your hand around and they'd have to move their body to like keep up with your hand. And then the instructor would be like, okay, now be, be an authority figure with your hand or like now be very nice with your hand and like all this different sort of like weird creative stuff. Um, But I found at the end of it, I was just like super invigorated. I've just been in this world of like theory and up in my head and like this sort of stuff. And then we went to this realm of spontaneity and play and being weird and like stretching our voices to the limit and like saying goofy stuff, like not being serious. And I had this sort of like breakthrough moment where I was like, holy shit, like improv is needed to transition from this society into the utopian society like getting people out of their head and like like unclenching their lower back instead of being all like i've got the best theory like 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 because that's where i was at and then doing the theater of the oppressed stuff at the end i was like i feel like dancing i feel like joy and absolutely i sort of had this feeling of like if we naturalized improvisation and that goofiness and that play in everyday life people would be capable of democracy. Like people would be capable of getting into groups and making democratic decisions and being joyful instead of like rigid. And I don't know, that was just, that was like this experience I had recently that was really sort of potent. And then rereading this essay now, I was like, fuck, this is so on point. Like this is, we need this. Like society is structurally imposing sort of this subtle, humorless, authoritarian world on us. And like, I had this taste of what the opposite is and the need for it. In the book, there's a study that I talk about done by Alice Eisen, I think in the 70s, where there was like this puzzle that groups had to solve. It was like you had a cork board and a candle and a 
box of matches. And it was like, can you get the candle mounted to the cork board where it won't drip on the floor? I think this is what it was. And so what you end up doing is using the box of matches and the push pins on the cork board to like mount the box of matches as a shelf and put the candle on there. And then it drips on the box of matches. And a lot of people will just like, you know, use the matches like, oh, this is how we light the candle. Now we got to figure out how to get the candle and, and do all kinds of silly things. But what her experiment looked at, you know, there was a control group, but then she would have people do like a math test and then go in there and do it. And then she'd have people watch like a Three Stooges movie and then go in there and do it. And then it turned out that the people who viewed comedy were kind of primed to think the most creatively and come up with a clever solution to mount the candle. And the people who did math or nothing, you know, it was by a pretty significant margin. Watching something that's funny gets your brain sort of primed to think about different planes intersecting. And, you know, maybe this this theater of the oppressed where you're forced to, you know, like somebody else says something, but now you have to hold your body in the exact position that somebody else was just holding theirs. And like, those aren't your natural positions. Those are theirs. And suddenly you're doing those and their accent and their way of phrasing and their way of standing. And you're pulled outside of yourself and forced to just embody someone else with a different experience on the other side of the room who's not you. And I can see how that would be an amazing experience as long as you don't end up just making fun of people. That study you mentioned, I mean, the, the implications there are amazing for the shit that yeah, I like. I don't even remember how I found that. It was like I was doing other research for the book and it was like buried in a footnote of a footnote. And I was like, wait a second, what is this? And it took me a long time to even dig it up. Like it was mentioned in passing in the back of something. And once I found that, I was like, my God, this is this is <laughs> what what it all hinges on. There's like science backing me up here. I'm not just <laughs> running my mouth endlessly, typing and typing and typing and then sending it off to the publisher. Because up until I started finding things like that, it was just, eh, it seems true. Why don't I write that? But then right. actual psychological science. It makes so much sense that being primed with something that's just like a kind of rigid rule-based system and like, you know, no shade to math. Math is very useful. Yeah, math, Love math. Math's pretty tough. <laughs> Why do you hate math so much, Aaron? <laughs> priming your brain with that versus priming your brain with something that's just like erratic and, and funny and wild like the Three Stooges it makes so much sense that one of those would put you in a state of mind that's more able to think, you know, outside the box. Mm -hmm. It's also experimental evidence that validates my long-held feeling that every political meeting should start with a few improv games to warm everyone up, get everyone yeah. thinking outside the box and acting silly, so then they can sit down at the table together and do some good-ass democracy, do some good-ass revolutionary politics and, and create the world that we all need. Yeah, that sounds great. All meetings start with improv. Oh, look who it is, my favorite dental patient. <laughs> Stop, it's your favorite. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's not really right to pick a favorite. I have so many patients. Oh, I'm sure you have a favorite. It's just not me. I get so nervous. I hate oh, sitting no, here no, the whole no. time. It's okay to be nervous. A lot of people are nervous at the dentist. It's something I sit through because it's important. 
These short visits keep your teeth going. Without them, your face wouldn't make any sense. But what comes next is something I don't enjoy. I got my hands in your mouth. How do you feel about that? Yeah, yeah, me too. I love the dentist. Let me just um, get my little drill. Don't worry, that's normal. So, how's life? Really? Oh, well, she should apologize. Really? You found a new podcast? It mixes comedy and politics? Oh my god, you're saying that podcast was so good that you logged on to Patreon.com and started giving the creators of the show $6 a month? Wow, all those incredible bonus features and content just for $6? And you support the show and make it happen? That's incredible! Oh, sorry, sorry, I was really getting in there. Just like if you donate on Patreon, you get into a secret Facebook group. Good point. It is wonderful to support independent leftist content. Okay, now I'm going to do another standard part of the dental experience, and I'm going to slap you in the face repeatedly. Are you ready? Sorry, sorry. That's just part of basic dental work. You're wild, man. You're wild. It was painful, but necessary. Painful, but necessary. Okay, so I'm just going to lean you back in the chair now. And I'm going to leave the room for 40 minutes. Can I go too? Are we uh, done? No, no, we're not done. Okay. Back to the show. We now go to Wrongtown Clown University, where the teacher, Mr. Sparkles, is teaching his students about history and politics. I am a clown. Clown time. Mr. Sparkles? Yes. What is the first history and politics lesson about? We are learning about... Ah, Ah, hey, come on now. Just squirting water in my face from the flower pinned to your chest. Who who did that? (laughs) I understand it's an old clowning trick, but... ah. I don't know if this is the right time. It is the right time. Look at my big feet. Clown feet. Not to nitpick, but your feet are actually regular sized and the shoes are just quite large. No, no, no. Clown feet. Big. Mr. Sparkles, if you're unwilling to admit that your feet are actually normal sized, how can I trust your viewpoint in a political world where people in a lot of great power are able to just repeat lies and have tons of people believe them and and i just i'm looking for something a little more more grounded here are you listening to me or are you just pulling that never-ending set of tied together handkerchiefs out of the sleeve of your clown gloves where's it coming from oh (laughs) sounds um, like somebody needs to smile luckily there's a clown here let me write on the board today's lesson plan. Oh, oh, I drew a puppy. Uh, <laughs> what if we need to know Clownery. what the lesson's actually about? I say clowning and you write it down. Ah, uh, okay. I'll just write that down. <laughs> I say clowning again. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll just write clowning twice. Keep on. One more time. <laughs> Hey, and nobody else is writing it down. <laughs> oh, no, am I being clowned right now? You were clowned. Okay, I got clowned. You know, it's all it's all in good fun. It's Clown University. 
But seriously, seriously, Mr. Sparkles, I need to know, like, do we have a strong clownalysis about some of the most important things facing the world today, like ecological destruction, climate change, uh, just, to, just that one? <laughs> we need a total global climate strategy, building a leftist counter hegemony, <laughs> Ooh, oh, direct <okay>. democracy. <laughs> we'll write that down, that makes sense. Community ownership, <laughs> participatory budgeting. <laughs> now this is what I'm talking about. Global transition to an ecological democratic society. <laughs> ah, great, great, this is great. You start the book off with your introduction kind of lays out all of the crises that are facing society right now. You know, there's the ecological crisis on various fronts and economic crises. And just like it, in, in many ways, it seems like stuff is getting worse and worse and worse. And, you know, I just hear people saying, you guys think that joking around is going to be the answer to fascism? Like, no, we need to be serious. We need to organize, I don't know, <laughs> militias to go and fight these people. And I guess I'm curious like, what would you say to someone who says that unseriousness is a vice because it because it takes your focus away from what needs to be done? Like, if you're thinking about things on multiple different planes, you're not out there doing whatever the, the hard, serious work that needs to be done to make society better. Like, are, are jokes going to stop greenhouse gases? There's a lot there. And I don't think that I could ever give a sufficient answer because like how to structure political movements is such a huge and hugely complicated thing that varies by nation, by municipality, by the thing that you're attacking. Like if you're in some South American country where if you speak up, you're likely to get shot by a militia versus where you can get a permit and stand outside a city hall and shout with a bunch of safe people and the cops are just going to stand there and nod and you can all go home or agree how many people are going to get arrested and then you sign up and put your information down and get arrested and you know and it's this whole perfunctory thing like how to engage politically varies based on the issue at hand where you are when it is who you're dealing with if the proud boys are showing up you know it's like i don't think that there's any simple answer. And maybe that goes back into the multi-associative that I keep talking about in the in the book, that people from different walks of life are going to have different reasons for being interested in different issues. And I think that, you know, there's so much going wrong and so much work to be done that can be done from so many different angles and saying that here's this issue, you must, you must attack it from this angle and be serious in this way. But, you know, maybe that's great and it works for somebody to go and make these serious speeches and go around and knock on doors and solemnly ask for petitions and this and that and other people to go do street theater and somebody to like make jokes about it at their stand-up routine and, you know, different people attacking different topics in their own way is just another aspect of multi-association and the revolution will be hilarious is this like cacophony of different approaches and different ways of doing things. And I think that the multiplicity of possible ways of doing things is part of what makes being alive on earth so interesting that for just about anything, there's no 
single right answer. And I think that that goes back then to these far right people who are saying like, there is this tradition and this culture, which must be preserved and, you know, keep these people out of our country and all this, you know, nonsense. And they're very rigid and they have this like capital T truth that they're hanging on to. And people are like, why don't you debate them? And it's like, how do you even debate somebody like that? Who's just going to shout back their talking points. They have this ridiculous, but cohesive worldview and they can look out the window and make the world fit into the paradigm that their brain has constructed, and they can look out and see it. You know, they see a brown person walking down the street, and they're like, oh, you know, and they get angry, and they're like, get a job. And, you know, and to us, it's like, oh, we should go debate them. And then, you know, the, the I don't think that you're necessarily ever going to get anywhere like that. I think that it's not so much that you can say, you're wrong for X, Y, and Z, because they're never going to listen to that. You say, this is right. This is a different paradigm. Check out this way of looking at the world. It's a lot friendlier and gentler and allows you to accept and hang out with all kinds of interesting people. You should try it. You know, like just, I think getting out there and creating political structures that allow for more people to work together and be together. And so if you're dealing with climate change. And there's somebody who's like, well, this is a big, serious issue. I need to like get on my soapbox and do this speech that's going to make everybody cry. That's great. You know, there's room for that. And then, you know, somebody else who's like, well, I got this hardcore punk rock band. We're going to play some basement shows and like pass out literature. And it's like, that's exciting too. And then somebody's like, let's do an improv comedy sketch all about climate change, you know, and then that's great too. All kinds of people with all kinds of different perspectives who can all come together and talk about the same issue in different ways and start seeing it from different angles. And yeah, there's just no single right answer to anything or any single approach that's going to solve any of these ridiculously complex problems that we have. Saying the revolution will be hilarious isn't to say that it always has to be hilarious, that seriousness is banished. That... Always got to wear a clown nose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's about, I guess distrust if there is no humor. It should be part of it. It should be one of the multi-sociating fields should be humor because it, it, there's a lot to learn from it. But it's not like we're not, we're not banishing other forms of expression from the revolution or from changing society, the process of changing yeah. society. Today's very special episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by a completely humorless revolutionary. I'm sorry, we don't have time for clowning around. This is a really serious revolutionary struggle, and we need to deliver on behalf of all workers in history and act out their correct ideas. That sounds pretty intense. When was the last time you took a break? <laughs> a break? That's a bourgeois deviation. I'm a worker, and I'm working on behalf of all workers throughout history and enacting their correct ideas. Gotta say, sounds really stressful. Do you know the science behind stress and how people need time to relax? Like, how much vacation do you take a year? I suppose if I had more time in my day, I might eventually get around to reading something unimportant like the science of stress. But one thing that I do know for sure is that if I'm not working towards the correct ideas on behalf of all workers in history, even for one moment, I'm literally letting babies die. 
and I'm responsible for that. I'm not such a big fan of unserious activities. Watch a funny movie ever? If I'm being completely honest, I find most humor and comedy does not contribute to the people's revolution. So I would say that's a problem I have with it. Does anything make you laugh? Hmm. I suppose I might laugh victoriously um, if we completed the revolution. I've also been known from time to time to joke around a bit um, about some people who have incorrect ideas. We make fun of them and call their ideas insufficient. It's hilarious. It always brings a big smile to my face, and best of all, it contributes to the spread of correct ideas on behalf of all workers in history. Four years later. I just killed three of my best friends because they were plotting against all workers in history and correct ideas. I had no problem taking their life. It was a calculated and strategic act on behalf of correct ideas and all workers in history. It feels good to know that you have all workers in history at your back and your ideas are the correct ideas. And it's as easy as that. If I had failed to murder my three former best friends because they were plotting against me and all workers in history, well, then I would be guilty of the worst crime of all, which is allowing people to die. And that's why it was easy for me to take that action. A completely humorless revolutionary. That was the sponsor of today's show. And now we go to a high school. Hi there, everyone. It's me, Principal Wilkinson, your principal here at this school. I mean, I know you already know that, but look around. This is our auditorium. I, mean, I know you've been here before. Sorry for covering that. Super excited to be here at this mandatory event. And I don't want to waste too much of your time here, but we've got an exciting speaker today. Hutch Winters is here to talk about the importance of safe births and birth safety with a triple degree in geniusology. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but a triple degree is a huge deal. And a degree in geniusology is also quite impressive in itself. You mix the two and can make a principal jealous. It's so good. So, without further ado, Hutch Winters. Hey, thank you, Mr. Wilkinson, for that introduction. That was great. How are you doing out there, my bros, lady bros, NB bros, genderless bros, guy bros, people who don't identify as bros, bros. Now, bros, I got to get serious with you here because this is a sad story. My mother died of an unsafe birth. Staph infection, went septic, and it fried her liver died. I was 17, nowhere to go, no one to take me in. I slept outside in the cold. You know what it's like to sleep out in the open where anybody can just walk up to you anytime they want, take your stuff or kick you or scream at you? There's no locks when you don't have a home. There's no safety, there's no security, it's not a good scene. None of you want to be there, okay? But I was there for six years. This story does have a happy ending. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't a happy ending. Six years after I became homeless, I was high on LSD in an alley. It was my birthday. 
And what happened next, it was like this weird wall of flickering, I don't know, when it was coming at me from the east, and I don't even know what it was. My therapist called it a bisociational shimmer. I could just feel it inside my bones. I knew that on the other side of that shimmer, I was gonna pass to another plane of existence, a plane where something was different, something that was meaningful to me. And you know what? The next morning when I woke up hungover, feeling terrible, shaken awake by a stranger who said, Hutch, is that you, Hutch? I'm your dad. I know, but it was him and I believed him and the reason I believed him goes back to something my mother said. It was her dying words. I asked her, Mom, you gotta tell me, where is my dad? And she said, son, he left this earth when you were two years old. But in that moment, with that man looking down at me and I could see the family resemblance, I could see that he was my dad. I knew that when she had said he left this earth, she meant literally on a spaceship crazy, right? He had just come back from Mars. It's wild. It was the wildest moment in my life. And he offered me a home. He helped me get off drugs. He got me into school. I got my degree in geniusology. And it was all because I had a home. That's what it was. <laughs> Having a, a home and someone who cared about me. I got lucky. Thank you. In the book, you talk about utopia in a way that sounds a lot like the way we talk about utopia. And so I really liked it. Uh, you, you said that utopia was a moving target, something we aim at. You kind of lament the loss of utopian thinking on the left. You said here, we can no longer afford to do without utopian thinking. If we don't dream big now, there won't be anyone left to dream at all. To do so, we must first learn to embrace complexity rather than taking the easy path. A free society functions when unique individuals share common ground. And so these thoughts about utopia kind of culminate at the end of your book. The last chapter is called Walking Each Other Home. This is fascinating nonlinear essay, like a series of vignettes. You talk about what home has meant to you in the past. You get at a lot of the different ways that we think about home or use the word home. It's a very multi-sociative pastiche of bits that just are all used to evoke this feeling that home brings up in us. Like, I still think of my parents' house as my home, but I also have my home in Vancouver. Uh, so when I go back where my parents live, I'm going home, but then I'm going home in the other direction as well, is a point you made. And you, and you make the point that for some people who are fleeing negative circumstances, they are heading towards a home. It's, it's aspirational. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of it, we're talking about that the society that we want is like that aspirational home in the future that we want to get to and we're all just walking each other home and it's a very effective piece of writing and it's a beautiful way to end your book thank you when i was writing that it was like this essay i had been thinking about for a long time and never writing because it was too much of a 
a really open and just sort of emotionally felt topic. And something like the revolution will be hilarious where, you know, you have this thesis and you sort of sketch out what order you're going to do things. When I wanted to write this home essay, which I had been thinking about for a long time without actually doing and had just been thinking about, I didn't know how to begin or how to structure it. And I, that's why I did the sort of vignettes. And some of them follow from each other in a way where you're like, oh, right, that follows from that. But then sometimes it's just an entire change of subject. And, you know, it was the only way that I could actually really effectively approach the topic. Like it didn't lend itself well to a really linear bit of writing. Everything that was exciting about talking about the nature of home just sort of went away as soon as you get really clinical about it. And that combining my memory of the house I grew up in with uh, Dorothy Day, what she says about uh, her time in Oakland in the 04 or 06 when the earthquake was, the way that everybody helped each other out and the city of Oakland, you know, people poured in from San Francisco and like people were clothed and fed. And, and she said like it was in the aftermath of a disaster but it was this moment of home and helping that stuck with her for her whole life. And I think that that's really interesting, especially in relation to, you know, a book like The Shock Doctrine that Naomi Klein wrote, in particular, like in the way after Hurricane Katrina, the way that all these privatizing groups came in and like privatized the educational system in New Orleans and destroyed it, like that these right wing groups were sort of waiting for a disaster to go in and remove social safety nets and replace everything with for-profit systems. And like, that's a possible after effect of a disaster. And she had this memory of a disaster when she was a child that brought people out into the streets to help each other. And I mean, that happened in Hurricane Katrina too, but then the press largely covers like, oh, look, there's looting. Oh, this many people died, but there's tons of people out there looking for lost people like helping old people out of their houses, making sure people are fed and clothed and safe. And so that the collapse of the overall infrastructure in a, you know, a hurricane or an earthquake removes the veneer of society that's kind of holding everything together. And there's a vacuum where, you know, what can rush into place? Either people helping out their neighbors and on a face-to-face -face level providing for and taking care of people in a way that you never have before. And also at the same time, there's multinational corporations running in and privatizing in order to profit off of it and make your place of living less of a home than it ever was. And just the concept of home for me has always been a very uh, powerful one. Because a lot of words that are used in political writing are used so ubiquitously that they've lost a lot of their meaning, like community. Like anybody can throw the word community around, you know, democracy. I spent a lot of time unpacking what I mean by democracy because it's so everywhere that you just read it and it doesn't like strike you as anything necessarily important. And I think home has always been like this really emotionally resonant concept for me. And I also feel like it's not overly ubiquitous in political writing, where it can still be fresh and mean something to people when they're reading it. And one of the things I made in promoting that was a dubiously legal cut up of different songs that use the word home. 
and put those together into sort of like a negative land kind of spliced up musical piece. And I also noticed that a lot of the songs that use the word home are in the same key because there wasn't that much work putting them together, which is kind of interesting. Many in the key of D or G. Oh, yeah, that is interesting. Maybe we can play a clip of that. If there's a... Let me go home. Why don't you let me go Why don't you let me go? When I get home, my song will be over when I get home. I swear I want to be, but I guess I'm already there. I come home. I want to go home. Yeah, yeah. Well, I feel so broke up. It was a very effective piece of writing, the way you went about it, like not going linear with it was totally the right choice because you were trying to invoke this feeling and like it definitely worked for me. So yeah, I I appreciated it a lot and I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so I'm going to, right now I'm facing Adam, but instead now I turn to the audience and I say, (laughs) hey, everyone, this collection of essays is so fucking fire. You got to pick it up from New Compass Press. It's called The Revolution Will Be Hilarious. It's so good. And actually, Adam's other book, Art as Politics, is also fucking straight fire. And I've read it also, and it's incredible. Like, you got to check these things out. Worth it. Pick them both up. You'll be happy you did. This shit is so, so good. For me, this is like the cutting edge of like utopian theory right now. I love it so much. Sorry for praising you so much in front of you, Adam. I just <laughs> I, like I really, really dig these essays. That's so sweet to hear. And one other thing, if you're the type of person who's daunted by the idea of reading a book, I just want to say The Revolution Will Be Hilarious and Other Essays is a very short book. It's very concise and to the point. And uh, I I read through it in a day and it's amazing. And so don't be worried. It's not a huge book. You can do it. You can you can definitely read this whole book. Yeah, you'll finish it. You'll finish it. You'll be like, I finished a book in 2018. Look at me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Finished a motherfucking book. Okay. well, thanks for coming on the show, Adam. Great conversation. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Thank you. You too. I can't wait to hear it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming out tonight. Does anyone support mean jokes here? Do you guys mind if I do some mean jokes? No, you don't support him? You don't support him? Ah, damn. All my stuff is mean. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I would never participate in something like that. I get that it's catching on, but it's not me. It's not me. But um, have you seen Trump's frown? Who does he think he is? Winston Churchill? He'd be lucky to be compared to Mussolini. Winston Churchill, no way. Come on, Trump. Honestly, Trump, you look like baby making boom boom. You don't look like Winston Churchill. You look like baby making boom boom. Let's just get that out of the way. Let's just admit that. You know, I do a bit of political comedy, a little bit of politics. Sorry to trigger some of the snowflakes here who hate politics. Non-pols, we call them. Any non-Pauls in the house tonight by round of applause? Oh, you filth. 
No, the thing I really, really hate about non-Pauls is they pretend that their lack of participation in the system is like somehow principled. They pretend like, oh, you know, I, I don't really keep up with politics because it's all so corrupt. It's like, come on, get real. You were jerking off. Just admit the reason you don't keep up with politics is because it is a set of knowledge which is cumulative and it's nearly impossible to keep up with and it's hard. The other thing, you know, about non-Pauls is I find this so annoying with non-Pauls. I know offense to the non-Pauls in the audience tonight. You know, they'll be like, oh, not everything's political. You know, this, this apple's not political. Like, checkmate. <laughs> and it's like, did you know that that apple was grown in a tree in a nation state which had borders and has border enforcement and police? There was a regulatory framework that ensured the safety of that apple. And when politics is failing, you no longer have access to fresh fruit. I, I, you know, I feel bad making fun of non-Pauls, though. It's kind of like statutory dunking. It's like someone in grade 12 dunking on someone in grade 1. It's like, okay, yeah, you dunked on the non-Paul, but, like, shouldn't you be helping them? But politics is funny. It's really funny if you think about it. You know, voting, what is voting? Break down some sort of complex, intense political issue into a yes or no question, which invariably leaves out all the important details. And then at the end, 51% walk away victorious, but also sort of underwhelmed with the choices they were given in the first place. And 49% walk away feeling like disenfranchised losers. What's the deal with politics? And, you know, you got to hand it to people who are political. They really care about things. They really care about things. Most of them care about things that really don't matter. But you have to hand it to them. They do care and they're not a non-Paul. That's a start. Like, you ever meet someone who really, really cares about an issue, but it's, like, the worst issue, and they're really, really dedicated to it? They're like, we need to keep the mall open longer. Starting a whole political party. Keep the mall open. Keep the mall open. Doing direct action, breaking windows at the mall. Ah, we opened it. Ah. Put on our black block before the window smashing. Sorry, I messed up the I messed up the punchline of that joke. I told it out of order. It's politics. It's politics. You know, it's crazy. Um, no, it's pretty funny actually. I was at the park the other day. Political people, I swear to God, they're like, work, 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 everything for the revolution. It's like, take a break, sit at the park for a minute, contemplate what you're doing before you just go off the rails and start calling firing squads to kill your comrades. I really think the weekend is important for that reason. I'm pretty sure that's what caused the fall of Soviet Russia, actually. Lack of weekends for their leadership. They were all like, everything's for the people. Oh, it's time to help the people again. And it's like, take a break, buddy. You're going to kill your friends. So I'm sitting at the park, right? I'm sitting there, and I see these kids playing on the swing, these little kids, babies with their mothers. And you ever see the look in a mother's eye when she's looking at her baby with love? It's, it's incredible. It's, it's intense. It's the way that I look at a sandwich. <laughs> Except the, the mother actually loves the baby. And so these babies are playing, and I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, you know, I'm having a cigarette. Sorry, Mom. My mom's in the audience tonight. Having a cigarette, and I'm thinking, oh my God, we are on the precipice of an ecological crisis. We're gonna have a utopia or oblivion moment in our lifetime. The time to act is yesterday. If political action to survive or mitigate the climate crisis isn't taken before these children graduate high school, they're going to inherit a dying planet. 
There's not going to be any hope for these babies and children unless we act. And it made me feel sick to my stomach that we are handing off these innocent beings that represent all human potential, all goodness of humanity, represented in these little balls of potential. And these babies don't have the opportunity to act. We have to act as adults. We have to protect them. We have to protect the future for them. We need to have a large-scale rollout around the world of a full climate transition which respects human dignity at every step in the process and creates an ecological and democratic society that works for everyone, not just small groups of billionaires, but everyone. The poor, the old, the children, the disabled, everyone. There's no other choice. It is utopia or oblivion. We have to make our choice now and act soon with a total global climate strategy which saves us all and has just has a chance, a chance of guaranteeing these children a future where they can have decent lives, they can have children of their own, and that they aren't boiled alive in their homes and tortured by scarcity. Plan A. Plan A makes sense. We're talking about a total revolutionary change without unnecessary bloodshed, war, or pain. Starting first in the realm of ideas and guided by love, we need Plan A. Now, who's with me? Plan A. Are, are we all here for Plan A? Okay, let's do it. Let's march in the streets. Yeah, I'm serious. Stand up. Stand up. Get out of your chairs. Get out of your chairs. Get out of your chairs. No more jokes. Okay, I'll tell you one more joke. But then we're marching. So here's my joke. My girlfriend cheated on me. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, boo. I, yeah, it sucks. But she cheated on me with a woman. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what a lot of people say. They say it's like, ooh, yeah, nice. I actually found it was still emotionally damaging. Sorry, that wasn't a good joke. I'm just, yeah, I just don't, I don't really find that whole idea of like, ooh, hot lesbians. Ugh. It's not like that's never been my thing in the first place. It seems like objectifying. And then I guess like my primary problem with being cheated on isn't, Plan the idea of being replaced by a man, it's the breaking of trust in general. I, I know, you guys are right. Plan A. Okay, let's go. Plan A. Plan A. Plan A. Plan A. Plan A. Plan A. talking about the home piece i was thinking we might after the closing theme and stuff like that that we might do like a like a little reading from it do you think that would be cool with you oh yeah absolutely the original publication of that was like a tiny ass little pamphlet where i made a pop-up book house like i folded all these houses but another thing in there was like a little like download card for a song that has sort of droney sound but the all the lyrics are walking each other home. There's like four different vocalists and four different time signatures, and it's like kind of weird, but also like pretty and repetitive. 
it might it might be a really good uh, backing track. I spent the first part of my childhood living in a house at the end of a gravel road. Our backyard led directly into a large cluster of trees containing dirt paths and secret forts. Beyond those trees, a field filled with wild strawberries led to an old rusting truck. The place I think of as my first home no longer exists. The woods are gone. The gravel road is paved. It no longer dead ends, but extends into the new subdivision that has supplanted the woods, the field, and the abandoned truck. Enclosed spaces with lockable doors have replaced the open spaces I still think of as my first home. A home is not simply four walls or a fixed residence. It's a set of circumstances in which the self, society, and nature can sit in a dynamic, collaborative relationship. A home is where we can be or become ourselves. It doesn't matter if we've ever even been there. Just imagining its outline is enough to inspire longing. As Ursula K. Le Guin writes, home imagined comes to be. It is real realer than any other place, but you can't get there unless your people show you how to imagine it, whoever your people are. They may not be your relatives. They may never have spoken your language. They may have been dead for a thousand years. They may be nothing but words printed on paper, ghosts of voices, shadows of minds, but they can still guide you home. Every being, every bit of matter, is at the center of its universe. We travel like turtles, our homes on our backs, pulling a universe along with us. When I enter your home, I bring mine in with me. Treat everyone like an invited guest. Behave like an invited guest. Remove your shoes, if asked. Help with the dishes. Play with the children. Wherever you are, remember, you are in someone's home. The existing institutions that keep so many of us incapable of creating a home could crumble at any moment. When they crumble, we could live in better, more benevolent ways. We could learn to love each other. We could learn to live as neighbors. But do we really need to wait for total collapse? Or can we just make sure everyone gets home safely? Can we start living in ways that make sense? Can we find our own way home? Everyone, please make yourselves at home. Next time on Seriously Wrong. Oh, 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 where, where am I? Burke, oh my God, you're awake. Whoa. It worked, Whoa. the treatment worked. Treatment? You've oh, been whoa. in a coma for 20 years. Oh my. You had a massive uh, aneurysm, dude. But what about dear leader, uh, Lord, Lord Big Baby, is he all right? Oh, Lord Big Baby, right. Um, so, okay, about 
three years after you fell into a coma, Dissidents filmed Lord Big Baby using the toilet like a big boy. All, all by himself? All by himself. <laughs> it's okay. You can laugh. It's a bit funny, right? <laughs> what? what the heck? <laughs> but that's what everyone was saying. They were like, he's a baby. How can you use yeah, the toilet he, like a big boy? Uh, yeah, you should be changing his diaper. What is he doing <laughs> on the toilet? <laughs> so once we realized that he wasn't actually a baby, he was a man. And it's kind of obvious, right? Once you think about it, <laughs> he was a man a, the whole time. A man. <laughs> he, he wasn't a baby. The babies aren't that big. Yeah, babies, babies aren't that are big. I don't know how we believe that. So, like, <laughs> what? Yeah, I don't know. We, what the um, heck? So we deposed him, non-violently. Oh, okay. And. You know, people kind of just stuck with the good ideas of what he was saying, that, you know, we need to create a world that is nurturing babies into the best adults they can ever be, focusing in on that infinite potential that each baby represents, the seeds that they are, and growing it into a beautiful society that just, we've done it, man, we're here. It's the society we always dreamed of. And, and do we keep about the baby stuff that everyone is sort of themselves a baby in a way, in a metaphorical sense, and that we're all born into this world, babies. We still contain everything that we have ever been to sort of like honor that inner naivety of Absolutely. people. Yeah, one of the main ways people greet each other now is by saying the baby in me bows to the baby in you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's a bit, it's funny, uh, but uh, it like, it takes on a deep significance. Like we are all innocent beautiful bouncing babes that's where we came from and yeah i don't know it's it stuff's a lot better now and i'm really glad that you're here to see it with me because uh i missed you yeah yeah it's good to be back it's it's, it's good to be back <laughs> i feel like i feel like coming home i mean like i never left town uh, you know i've traveled but i never moved away but having you back like when i think of my youth and just well, it wendell we're best buds it is like being home it didn't feel like home while you were here in the hospital bed just just welcome back man i don't know it's like it's really good to be back wendell homies for life homies for life homies like a home <laughs> yeah right maybe that's because <laughs> you're like thought of that. that makes sense <laughs> Like that feeling in your chest when you reflect on the concept of home, like going home, being home, that warmth, that safety. Your friends are part of your home or they're like your social home. It's just, yeah, homies. Wow, that's such a brilliant word. I wonder who came up with that. Some sort of incredible, beautiful genius. Yeah, well, the baby in me bows to the baby in them. <laughs> I'll goo goo gaga to that. Speaking of home, your parents kept your bedroom just like it was. I think we should go see your parents. Yeah, let's let's do it. Do you mind walking me home? Yeah. You haven't seen the town in 20 years. There's so oh, they're, oh, just thinking about all the cool things I get to show you, like the water slide and the way that we've expanded the libraries. It takes up the whole town square now. It's this huge complex with all kinds of free classes and tools, and that's just one thing. God, every aspect of society is different now. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous <laughs> to think that you, oh, you don't know it all. Oh, it's going to, yeah, let's go. Let's go for a walk. I'll point a few things out to you. Let's go see your parents. I can't wait to see everything. The baby in you is walking home, the baby in me. Oh, man. Home. Home. It's a warm, warm feeling, safety. 
Yeah, it's, it's nice. It radiates through your chest. Home. <laughs>